This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome to the show. I'm thinking about the gut this week and wondering how you think about the gut, how you feel about your digestive processes, the various products of those digestive processes, what happens when those processes start acting up, the unease, the embarrassment, the shame that can all result from gut issues. Because gut issues are very, very common. If you think about bacterial infection, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, all very common and all officially categorised as digestive disorders. But then there are all sorts of other things not categorised as digestive disorders that can still affect the gut. Celiac disease, migraines, menstruation, anxiety, food intolerances, they can all cause a lot of gut-related disruption and a lot of social anxiety. According to the CSIRO, every year 50% of Australians experience gut disorders and one in seven Australian adults experience gut symptoms that they describe as distressing. That's a lot of people, a lot of distress, and yet there's a certain silence around gut issues. You can talk about your hay fever quite freely at a dinner party, but try talking about your chronic bowel problems and see if you get invited to any more dinner parties. So the two main questions we're exploring today are, number one, why the stigma and the silence? And number two, what resources might philosophy bring to the table that can help make life easier for the great many people who experience gut issues? And I don't know if this needs to be said, but I'll say it anyway. There are some topics and some language coming up that some listeners might find off-putting. But then that just goes to this whole point about stigma and shame. So if you're feeling like all of this is getting a bit gross, then I encourage you to stick with it because there's also some really interesting and maybe helpful discussion coming up about disability in general and how we can perhaps think about it more constructively. My guest this week is Jane Dryden. She's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick on the east coast of Canada. We don't tend to think about the gut as being a a classic topic for philosophy, but there are some philosophers who have engaged directly with the gut. Nietzsche, of course, is one, but also Hegel. Um, In fact, your interest in the gut was sparked by Hegel. So can you tell me about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, So I'm trained in history of philosophy and love Hegel. And most of my interest in Hegel for a long time was in terms of his social philosophy, his work on freedom, his account of freedom that contextualizes us within a society and and so on and so forth. Um, but in the in the wake of some work that's been coming out recently in Hegel scholarship that's been spending a lot more time looking at his philosophy of nature, his anthropology, those areas of the texts, I became interested in what Hegel has to say about our body, right? So these sort of previously, I think, underappreciated areas of his thought. And I was reading through some of the stuff he says about the body and in particular digestion. And I came across this really interesting passage where in some of the additions to his lectures, he talks about how, of course, when we digest something, we take what is other to ourselves, bring it into ourselves and, you know, assimilate it, which is, you know, a familiar Hegelian story. But then he says, there's often a little bit extra that remains behind, a little bit of a remainder. And he gives us an example, uh, the smell that your urine takes after you eat asparagus. It's just this lingering residue of what was distinctive about asparagus, even after the sort of moment of assimilation. And I found this was really interesting because Hegel so often is taken to be this like massive system thinker who, you know, absorbs everything into the totality um, but when you look at the details of his philosophy, there's all of these really interesting little odds and ends where things aren't fully, you know, assimilated, where things aren't fully taken in. And I found this kind of encounter with 
the other, where we take it in, but there's still such a something remainder, still, still something that's not totally in our control, uh, to be really interesting. And I started thinking about asparagus pea because one of the things I find interesting about it is so often the messages that we get about our body are about controlling it, making it just so, right? The, the gigantic wellness industry. And one of the things I found interesting about this was that asparagus pea is one, like for, some people don't experience it, but other people, you know, you eat asparagus, your pea smells funny. And we're kind of just okay with it. It's like this little weird, little quirky part of our bodies that we don't attempt to control. We just let it be as it is. We find it a little bit silly and it's just not at all a problem. And I, I wrote a conference paper <laughs> about this. It was one of the first things I wrote after getting tenure. And I was like, ah, yes, I'm a tenured professor. Now I'm going to talk about asparagus pee at a philosophy conference. And I was doing some digging around and I found this, uh, quote somewhere in a magazine article from this woman who's a real estate agent saying, you know, I really like the smell of asparagus pee. It's a reminder, like, not to take ourselves so seriously. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, what if our relationship to the to our bodies could be less about needing control all the time and more about, you know, noticing what happens with it and letting it be? And while there's not much I could continue to do with asparagus, <laughs> asparagus pee, um, it did lead me down this path of becoming more and more interested in what's going on with digestion. How does digestion figure this relationship we have to the world. It's this sort of point of contact between us and the external world in which we're bringing it into us. But then, of course, the gastrointestinal tract is basically a tube. And so when we take food into the gastrointestinal tract, it's still kind of outside of us in a way. So it's this inside-outside relationship. And I just sort of, it was like philosophical catnip. I just kind of got, uh, I just kind of got hooked. Well, let's talk some more about digestion here and the awkwardness that so often accompanies digestive disorders, the, the, the gut issues that so many people experience. Why do you think gut issues are so hard to talk about and, and why do they have such particular stigma attached to them? Yeah, I mean, some of this, <laughs> I mean, some of this is the kind of work of anthropologists and sociologists going, going way beyond me. But what I can definitely say is they, they, they definitely are, right? They're really, really associated with not just embarrassment of the kind that, you know, like I've got a little bit of asparagus pee, I feel a little bit embarrassed, whereas gut issues, you know, like sort of feces, it's really, really associated with with shame, right? Um, especially any time that gut issues lead to any kind of violation of social norms, like breaking wind or losing bowel control in public. Like this is deeply, deeply moralized. It's like you should be I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying this is the social message, right? You should be ashamed of yourself. I think it has a lot to do with our conception of the of the boundaries of the body, of what's in and what's out. It has a lot to do with our sense that civilized adults are in control of their body and any failure of control is heavily moralized. I mean, we sort of say, you know, there's the sort of expression for adults that they should like have their shit together. <laughs> and of course, gut issues are exactly uh, are exactly a violation of that. Um, but people with gut issues talk about really experiencing a lot of pushback whenever they do try to talk about them. So there's an article that I really like by Cindy Lacombe who talks about gut issues and she has multiple sclerosis as well as Crohn's disease. And she's found that you know, talking about her MS in public is sort of not a big deal. People are sort of like, oh, that's that's interesting. 
it's still a very significant disability, but people are sort of curious, like, you know, how do you deal with that? Whereas when she mentions her Crohn's, people just don't want to talk about it at all. There's a real sort of fear, almost fear of contagion, even though there's nothing contagious about Crohn's as a condition. Shelley Tremaine has an amazing interview, uh, a series of interviews with disabled philosophers, and she has one from 2015 with Nancy Stanlick, who, um, who has a colostomy. And Stanlick describes in the interview sort of being told to her face, right? I would rather be dead than have a colostomy. So there's this real fear of anything that sort of breaks those bodily boundaries, challenges those bodily boundaries, challenges the sense of control over bodily functions. And then connected to that, the fact that feces are associated with contagion, filth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really deep rooted. <laughs> I want to delve a little bit more into this, maybe stretching the tolerance of our listeners a little here, but you know, th th there's this question about what is it about human feces that makes it so profoundly abject? Because the answer would appear to be self-evident, like, well, shit's disgusting. Everybody knows that. Like, how could you even ask? But that in itself just indicates how hardwired we are to recoil from shit. It doesn't explain why. And there's a human tendency, I guess, to recoil from other substances like blood and urine and other bodily fluids. But anything that emanates from the gut is especially repellent. What's going on there, do you think? I think there's a real connection to the early work of childhood development, of training, um, around potty training and so on and so forth, and sort of like your earliest your earliest achievements as a little tiny human are about controlling your bowel movements, right? Your earliest rewards are for where you do that properly. I don't know enough about early childhood development to say whether that's the thing that does it. Um, but I think that by the time you get that plus our early understandings of disease. So before we knew, before we knew very much about how contagion worked, Right. We have things like miasma and bad air. And of course, anywhere where you have a bunch of feces in, in, in public, it's going to have that kind of, that kind of bad air. And there was this sense of, you know, without really understanding how it worked, coming into contact with that bad air would be enough to kind of transmit the contagion. And so even though, of course, by the mid 1800s, we get germ theory, like thanks Louis Pasteur and all his buddies. Um, even though we get that, I think. People still don't really understand <laughs> germ theory in terms of our, our folk shared social understanding. And I think proximity to what seems filthy and proximity to what seems to have come out of us in that way still really contains that sense of, that sense of dread. It's also really heavily gendered. So there's research into this that sort of highlights that women are kind of expected to exercise this bodily self-control to like a, a much stronger degree than men. So that's a sort of association of women with purity. So women don't fart, women don't poo, their poos don't smell, all that kind of stuff, uh, which is not true. <laughs> women are human. Um, whereas, you know, sometimes with young men, like you might be able to have like an actual farting competition so there, so there is some difference there in terms of what we expect. Although my guess is that if you had a farting competition and, you know, accidentally a bit of poo came out, you would never live that down. You would never live that down. So it's gendered, but still only to a certain extent. The kind of general sense of, of shame really does seem pretty, um, I mean, I'm a philosopher, so I'm nervous anytime I say universal, but about as universal maybe as anything ever gets. <laughs> 
on Radio National and the ABC Listen app. This is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm talking this week about gut issues and the philosophy of disability with Jane Dryden. She's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, Canada. You've written about how disability theory can be really useful in suggesting changes to our shared social world that might ameliorate some of the problems experienced by people experiencing gut issues. And of course, you've also pointed out that not all gut issues count as disability. So bearing that in mind, um, you, you write, for example, about the medical model of disability, which permeates mainstream discourse and and, and for which disability theory provides a helpful critique. So there's a problem with the medical model there. First of all, what is the medical model and what's problematic about it? The medical model was sort of framed and described by disability theorists and disability activists in the process of developing its opposite, the the social model. And of course, as a a Hegelian, this pleases me very deeply. Um, And I do want to say before I start talking about the medical model, um, because doctors often say, hey, wait a minute, Uh, this describes a particular type of thinking about the body and thinking about disability. It's not necessarily intended to refer to literally all doctors. So the medical model has three key factors to it. One, it approaches disabilities as individual biomedical issues, right? So some particular thing that is a problem with a particular person. Second, the focus of attention is on cure, is on some way to fix it, is on some way to treat that individual issue. And then third, the emphasis is placed on the authority of the medical professional at hand. So in terms of thinking about the medical model, it's an improvement over older conceptions of disability that might have seen it as something moralized, as like a punishment for sin, as that kind of thing, but it has significant limitations. So first, that focus on cure or fix means that it's harder to get help and advice in terms of just figuring out how to deal with the world and figuring out how to navigate the world. It's reflected in the fact that many people with chronic illnesses um, sort of have some frustration dealing with the medical system, which is very much geared around acute issues rather than things that are going to be ongoing. The individual focus means that it's not attentive to how social and environmental factors could help or could be addressed through shared political action. And then finally, the authority of the medical professional, it only goes so far, right? So someone, for example, dealing with a newly acquired disability is going to find out through medicine, you know, here, here's your treatment options or alternately, here's, you know, here's your lack of treatment options. They're not going to necessarily find out how to deal with the world, how to navigate the world, how to access public transit or, or other kinds of things that they might need to do. Right. So if we want to think beyond the medical model of disability then and and its focus on the individual and consider a social model, what does that look like in, in broad theoretical terms? Yeah. So the key thing about the social model of disability is that it makes a distinction between impairment, which is a generally kind of value neutral bodily difference versus disability. And so, you know, you happen to have certain impairments, but what's disabling is barriers that you experience, oppression, ableism, lack of access, 
And so the real power of the social model is drawing attention to all that kind of stuff. So it leads directly into fighting for social policies that enable greater access, that sort of break down barriers, that attempt to combat ableism, uh, those sorts of responses. And so how might the social model of disability help to ameliorate the problems of people experiencing gut issues? One of the things that I really like about the social model is that it's not really going to say a whole lot about the impairments themselves, right? And on a social model approach to gut issues, our attention is, what are the barriers experienced by people with gut issues? And so here our attention is drawn to things like, is your experience of your gut issue made worse by the fact that you do shift work and you don't get any breaks or your breaks are timed to, <laughs> timed really, really specifically. And so you're not able to fully do the things your body needs to do. And so could we argue then for better work policies around breaks? Uh, does your commute involve two long bus trips with no bathrooms along the way, right? How could we make that better? Um, I mean, bathroom access is a huge thing throughout. As soon as you talk about gut issues, you're going to talk about the politics of bathrooms. Um, obviously, I work in the university system. And so when I think about uh, a social model response, even just to things that I deal with, right? One of the things is like, are my policies around attendance and participation, are they unnecessarily punitive to someone who might be dealing with some of the unpredictability of gut issues? What are ways in which as a matter of policy, I can change the academic environment that I'm creating in order to make it more accessible to someone whose body might not be fully under control or fully predictable. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, for people organizing events, uh, the social model would say, okay, well, is food going to be a barrier, right? The kind of food that's available. So it draws our attention to those things that can be changed. But there's an interesting argument here regarding the extent to which disability should be defined as the consequence of discrimination or, or negative social attitudes. Like if we pursue the social model of disability far enough, perhaps we arrive at the point where we could say that disability in and of itself doesn't necessarily make anyone worse off, right? It, it's the ableism, it's the social discrimination that account for all the negative effects of, of what is really just a different body, a, a sort of a non-pathological minority variant body. Can you speak to that a little? Is, is that a problem with the social model? Yeah. So, of course, as soon as we sort of think about, you know, so in the social model, disability is the oppression, the barrier, so on and so forth. It sort of then is like, well, how do we want to think of how do we want to think about disability at all? Do we want to think of it purely in these terms? And, you know, so Elizabeth Barnes is a philosopher who's written, who's written a lot about this. She's pushed back against the social model in some places, pointing out that, for example, there's bodily experiences that are going to be sort of painful or uncomfortable or unpleasant, regardless of the social environment going on. Um, and for her, a lot of what's then really important in disability pride is, no, there is something really valuable about disability that's not just a story of oppression. Um, so disability pride involves thinking of disabled people. They're, they're taken seriously in their understanding of disability. They push back against any sense of disability as tragedy and taking pride in the sort of shared wisdom in learning how to navigate the world with, with a body that's unpredictable. Um, or a mind that's unpredictable, um, learning how to sort of share resources. There's some really, I think, important work coming from disability justice, 
disability justice is a movement primarily led by disabled people of color, queer, trans disabled people, sort of drawing on a lot of their shared experience and wisdom. And they talk about the idea of crip wealth, which is this ability to cope with unpredictability, to adapt, to, to be resilient, to kind of with very little resources, put things together in creative and unpredictable ways that no one would be able to see coming. And they sort of talk about like, listen, given things like the COVID-19 pandemic, given the climate crisis, we need the kind of wisdom that disabled people have because disabled people are used to the world not being ideally and smoothly and perfectly made for them. These are exactly the people who have so much to share. That's a really interesting point because I, it it throws light, I guess, on the on the way in which, as a society, we tend to sort of deal with disability as something that requires an add on to the already existing structure of our of our culture. So, uh, people using wheelchairs need to access buildings. Fine, we'll put ramps and elevators on the buildings, and that's fine as far as it goes. But when you talk about drawing on the wisdom of people with disabilities, that's that's the process sort of going the other way where the disability experience can inform the culture. And I think really where many, many of us are not used to thinking about it like that. And it leads us into what you've written about as the cultural model of disability, where disability and culture inform each other. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, for sure. So I will say that uh, the grouping of the cultural model is something that I draw from uh, a UK disability scholar, uh, Dan Goodley, but I find it really, I find it really helpful when I'm sort of trying to situate and organize uh, a bunch of different theories. So yes, yeah, so it's about understanding the mutual shaping of disability and, uh, and culture and understanding that a lot of the time what we consider to be disability, the kind of things that show up to us as disability, that get read as disability, get read in that way because we're positioning them as other than the norm, right? And so it says a lot more about what a given society is trying to construct as normal, desirable, ideal, and in which anything that's not that is is the other, you know, is 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 the other is disability. The kind of work that gets done under this heading ends up also allowing for really important and useful analyses that then connect disability to race and gender and other kinds of sort of, you know, binaries of, you know, these are the people that society is set up for and and these are somehow and these are somehow not. So uh, David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder have really good work on this in which they argue that disability is something that marks bodies as expendable. So we have anxieties about bodily vulnerability. I mean, if you think about it, like, we wander around the world in like these weird flesh sacks that are, are so permeable to any kind of injury. Like anyone at a certain point, you know, I think all of my group chats uh, at a certain point are like, we're regularly comparing like, how how do your knees feel today? How is your back doing? So this kind of anxiety about bodily vulnerability, this anxiety about losing control means that we want to sort of push that away from us into some sort of other. And we say, well, well, that's disability. That's other. That's that's those particular people. That's those particular individuals. That's that's not us for some sort of broad social sense of us. And we're continuing to see this during the COVID-19 pandemic, where it doesn't necessarily always use the literal word disability, but you see it sometimes when people talk about who's quote unquote most at risk or who's most vulnerable during the pandemic. And it's always like, well, most of us will be fine. It's those people with 
underlying conditions, right? That won't be fine. You're going to be fine unless you have underlying conditions. And I think this is exactly that kind of work. Like you will be fine. You will be the self-controlled, autonomous, you know, sort of invulnerable citizen that we need to be productive. Um, and those others who can't hack it, well, they're the ones with underlying conditions. They're disabled. We'll, they'll be dealt with. They'll, we'll send them to their doctors if they have doctors. Um, anyway, and it's it's interesting how we kind of see this justifying a lot of the policies around generally opening up during the pandemic. Let's finish by bringing it back to gut issues then, because I think that, I mean, it's interesting, we began this conversation with Hegel, we're finishing up kind of in Foucault territory here, where I mean, you're, it seems you're talking about disability as something which is not a sort of natural, ahistorical phenomenon, but actually something produced by a wide range of discourses and institutions and laws and administrative measures. How does that analysis change the way that we think about gut issues and respond to gut issues? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So Shelley Tremaine is a philosopher of disability who's done amazing Foucauldian work on disability. And one of the things that I've learned from her and learned from her very Foucauldian analysis of how disability gets created through history is to be very, very suspicious of things that are characterized as natural inequalities, as though they're just ahistorical and unchangeable facts, right? Foucault, of course, teaches us to be very suspicious uh, of this. You know, we see so often in discussions of disability, and we see this as well in the history of philosophy and in political philosophy and social philosophy, the statement that, well, you know, we're going to kind of create a state in which people can kind of do the best they can, aim at justice, all this kind of stuff. But some people are just going to have, you know, natural features that make it harder for them. And that just happens to be the case. Um, and disability is absolutely one of these things. But we we can see when we when we look through history that what counts as disability is really contingent. And also the degree to which, you know, having a gut issue is going to affect your life is also really contingent. Um, so one of the things you can do is you can look at unemployment rates for people with disabilities in different parts of the world. And it really varies. It varies It varies up, it varies down. And yet you would expect, you know, different societies are probably going to have similar-ish numbers of people with various disabilities. And so the difference in employment rates is showing that there's something really salient going on with how that society is organized. So coming back to gut issues, lots of folks with gut issues don't necessarily want to claim disability as an identity for a whole pile of reasons. Some people might be like, well, I don't know if what I have is severe enough or counts or whatever else. But because of the silence around gut issues, everyone who is dealing with it is kind of left to cope with it for themselves in shame and in silence and to you know, get yelled at by their boss because they took a break that was too long or to get yelled at by the professor because they weren't in class on a given day or to not be able to go into work because their gut is acting up in that those two buses are just going to be too far with no public transit. And yet, if we talked about it more, if we recognize that the experiences surrounding gut issues are deeply, deeply contingent, then we can we can do it differently, right? And sort of drawing on that, drawing on that sort of shared disability wisdom and really centering that. And my, I, I like to think that so many people have some experience of gut issues. So many people, like, it's just, it's incredibly, the conditions I'm describing are really common. 
And so what would happen if we centered a world in which we recognize that people weren't always 100% in control of their bodies? People might need to be able to sit. People might need bathrooms. People might need breaks. People might need to go a little bit slower. That this would be a world that would be more accessible for everyone, I think. Again, as a philosopher, I'm nervous about saying everyone. But it'd be generally more accessible. It would be more welcoming. And there's going to be less emphasis on making sure that everyone was completely autonomous and entirely productive all the time and more on, you know, what we need to build a world that we can all participate in. Jane Dryden, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, all the way over on the east coast of Canada. More info on the website where you can stream this episode and all of our past episodes. And of course, you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone, available anytime via ABC Listen. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. How does someone's inner world affect the world that we all share? Hello, I'm Meredith Lake, the presenter of Soul Search, a show about the beliefs and practices that anchor our lives, from the search for truth and beauty. This incessant human drive, even desperation to uncover, to discover, to go deeper into the truth of things. To connecting with the environment, to community and country. These traditions, these experiences, these multiple generations that come before you, the landscape that forms you and in which you're embedded. Exploring how the world's great religious and spiritual traditions continue to play a role in the lives of millions. 2024 is going to be a big year for Soul Search, and I'd love you to join me on RN and the ABC Listen app.